clean and unclean. You're probably glad you're not Jewish. You're probably glad you're not under the law. You're probably glad that you're not declared clean or unclean. You know, my first job, first real job that I had besides picking berries and things like that was to work at a chicken farm and talk about unclean. Oh, the end of the day, I smelled like a dirty, rotten chicken rolled in chicken manure. That's how I smelled at the end of the day. Our clothes were permeated with that from eight or nine hours in the chicken barns. It was awful. I took a cut in pay to get a much better job in much better working conditions as a dishwasher in a restaurant. Well, I guess if dishwasher, if the chicken farm was unclean, well, maybe that was clean, or after I finished anyway. But, uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't be around anybody after I was at work. I could not have stopped at a Starbucks on the way home. They would have thrown me out. It was that bad. It was a great experience for me as being unclean and shamed. I was ashamed for anybody to catch me, see me, smell me in that condition. I would literally shed those clothes before I got in the house. It was that bad. That's something of what some people bear in terms of, in the Old Testament economy, in the biblical world, this notion of being clean and unclean. That there were all kinds of things of daily lives, things that you could not avoid, things that were part of our mortal, fleshly, human bodies that would make you unclean. Peter was a fisherman. As a fisherman, if he did catch fish, well, the fish would die. You take them out of the water, you pull them in the boat, and the fish die. And guess what? Fish which are clean to eat, but when they're dead, being in contact with that body makes the fisherman unclean. Peter was in a vocation that every day made him unclean until sundown when a new day starts. And so you can bet he's got to wash his nets and get rid of those fish and get them to the market before day's end, before sundown, so he doesn't already start the next day also polluted, unclean, separated. This whole notion of clean and unclean is not merely a religious technicality. Oh, can't go to the temple today, you know, I'm unclean. <laughs> no, it was, a, it was an ostracized, a separation, a, a not belonging. The idea of shame, honor, and how honor is other people's esteem of you. Shame is other people's poor opinion of you, looking down on you, their critique and judgment of you, considering you to be less valuable or desirable or maybe despicable or maybe even detestable, the lowest level of shame. So there's a whole range there. And the reason, why does God do that in the Old Testament? Why is there this whole clean, unclean thing? You know, all the wars and the battles, and, and part of that is to show us a God of power that can deliver, can rescue, can fight for his people in terms of a spiritual reality that is beyond our direct apprehension. And yet our God is powerful and is able to defeat those enemies. The, the, the whole unclean, clean thing in the Levitical system, in the Old Testament religious ritual, was to show us something about humanity. 
There are things in this life that you could do that would make you unclean. Actions you should avoid, but if they came upon you, they would make you unclean. But also there were, there were just regular stuff of human life, that people die. My, my family member dies, and I must tend to the body that's going to make me unclean. There's the whole unclean clean, the, the shame versus honor, the loss of honor in being shamed, being excluded, being unacceptable, being unclean. What that's all about is that there's something wrong with humanity. There's something wrong with us. It's, it's connected at times to sin, even though just regular stuff of life, not merely sinful behavior, could make you unclean. Because there's something wrong with humanity, something that defiles us, and we need to be made clean again. And having a pattern, having an object lesson is to teach us something spiritual that we cannot see, that we cannot handle, that we can't detect with our senses, but there's a spiritual reality about being accepted or being excluded. Belonging or being outcast. Now, that's a spiritual reality, but it's also a social reality. It's also the way that you feel. At times about you, at times about others. We experience this honor-shame dimension not in, in terms of how we consider others and how we're afraid that others consider us. And so we strive for a better opinion in somebody else's eyes. It might be good and honorable people, or it might be lowlifes. When I was in high school, I did things I never should have done so that this crowd of guys would, would let me be part of them. And they weren't the best guys to be running around with to begin with. They were not a good influence on me. As the Bible says, bad company corrupts good morals, and it did. Well, not that I was a stunning example of good morals to begin with. But, but the things that we will do, even bringing shame among our, upon ourselves in order to bring dishonor among ourselves in order to belong to others, even if it's belonging to those who are dishonorable. We feel it, and we also project it. There are others that you do not honor. There are others that you would exclude yourself from. They are simply not the company you would keep. And if somebody of a particular pattern, I'm not even going to bother to describe it, you could describe it, and each of you would define this somewhat differently, but there is somebody, some kind of person, that if they were to come in and sit down next to you, your thought would be hidden deep inside you, it wouldn't be out loud. What are they doing here? They don't really belong here with us. Not if it was known who they really are or what they're really like or what they really do. What are they doing here with us? We know what it is to be excluded. We know what it is to shame and exclude others. The one who changes that is the Son of God. The lamb slain, high and lifted up. Jesus is not merely the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. And who are those 
Who are those? What do they look like, the ones whom, to borrow that line again out of Esther chapter 6, taken a Persian king and a a historic story, and that's recorded for us, and we can grab that line out of it. Who are those ones that the king delights to honor? The king, not merely the Persian king, but the king of kings delights to honor a certain kind of people. And it's not those who already are holy. It's not those who already are clean. It's those who are unclean. In fact, it's sometimes it's those whom others would declare to be detestable, to be an abomination. I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 5. Four stories in Luke chapter 5. Four people that we're introduced to. These are examples. These are the kinds of ones that the king delights to honor. And this ought to give us hope. It ought to give us encouragement, not only for people around us, people that you know that can be included, that God would in fact honor. But it's good news for me. It's good news for you. Because somewhere in here you might find yourself that you are, in fact, the kind of needy person whom the king delights to honor. Let's look in Luke chapter 5. First, I'll read the first episode, the episode with Peter, first 11 verses. On one occasion... While the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, Jesus has has just begun a public ministry, healing and teaching. The crowds are starting to form. He's standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them, were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Simon Peter, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down, and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets, not expecting anything. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large, their nets, as they, as they laid them out and round, began to draw them in again, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking, more than the nets were, were intended to hold. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and, and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Oh, Lord, for, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that had taken. So also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who partnered with Simon. And Jesus says to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Peter. Peter is, is somebody who, when he's confronted with whom he perceives to be a holy man of God. This is a man sent from God. He doesn't know who he is, but he knows he's a teacher of God's truth. He knows that God's power is in him to work miracles. He's seen that, and now he's experienced. He would exclude himself from the blessing. He would say, depart from me. 
It's going to be more trouble than blessing to have a holy man of God in my presence because I'm not worthy. Peter's estimation of himself as unworthy. Peter's own shame self-excludes himself from Jesus' blessing. Because if Jesus is a holy man, then there's no way that Peter could be in his presence. Either it would taint Jesus' ministry, or perhaps he fears that Jesus' holiness could not endure him and is going to bring calamity down upon Peter because he can't measure up. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. When he says sinful man, he means I'm unworthy. Peter was a, Peter was a guy, a fisherman. We love fish. You go to Galilee today and you want to take a, take a boat ride across Galilee. You want to pay extra money, probably three times what it's worth to eat St. Peter's fish. Because, man, this is fish from Galilee. And it's wonderful. But Peter, as a fisherman, was not an esteemed man in the community. It was a dirty trade. It was an ugly trade. Maybe it wasn't quite as bad as the chicken barns, but it was close. You were made unclean every day in your work. Not an honorable profession. When he says, I'm a sinful man, he's not talking about individual guilt over particular acts. He says, in my being, this is what I am. I am, as a human, unclean. And you, sir, are holy. I don't measure up in your presence. Now, now, we feel that way somewhat ourselves in relation to God. It affects our prayer life. It affects will we pray or not. It, it, it affects what we would imagine God would use us in terms of service or in sharing our faith with somebody else. Who am I? I don't measure up. I'm unworthy. Shame self-excludes. And yet, Jesus pursues Peter. Jesus goes after Peter. Jesus finds Peter, and Jesus calls Peter, and Jesus says, don't be afraid. I will make you. I'm going to make you not a fisher of men. I'm going to make you catch men, is what he says here. Those are the words that Luke captures. I'm going to make you catch men. You can't. You're, you're a fisherman, and that's not so great. But Peter, you're not even a good fisherman. I mean, you were at it all night and nothing. And it wasn't because there's no fish in the lake. Obviously. I will make you what he is not himself. We're afraid of our own unworthiness. And I want you to compare this to Peter version 2. In John chapter 21, you have this post-resurrection appearance of Jesus also by the shore of Galilee. And Peter and some of his friends, they have, I don't know what else to do while we're out here up in Galilee waiting for Jesus to show up next. Let's go fishing. And so they go fishing. And again, the same kind of thing. They're fishing, they catch nothing, but Jesus shows up on the, on the shore. And he says, hey, you catch, how's it going out there? You catching anything? Not a, not a nibble. And he says, well, put your kit. That's all. And they got all kinds of fish. And Peter realizes, we've been here before. And what does Peter do? This is the time he's too far away. I mean, maybe Peter was like me. Maybe Peter needed glasses for that farther away. Can't really tell who that is on the shore. But as soon as the fish thing happens, he and John know. They've been here before. 
And, and what does Peter do? Oh, Lord, depart from me. Now you're, now you're resurrected and I denied you. I'm even more. No, no. Peter throws on his tunic. He, he jumps in the water and he doesn't even worry about the fish. He, he beats it for sure. He's going to get to Jesus. And when the others can't even bring in the boats because of all the fish, well, Peter will go back and he'll help them. But he runs to Jesus now. Because remember, after Peter's resurrection, one of his first appearances, we're not even given a window into that appearance, but one of his first appearances is to Peter. By the time the two from the Emmaus Road get back to the upper room where the others are gathered, he's already appeared also to Peter. He's already seen Peter before he appears to all of them in the room together. A private audience. Peter betrayed him. Peter wasn't worthy. Peter did just what Jesus warned him he would do. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. And yet, Jesus pursues him. Peter would self-exclude, and so would we. But Jesus' words to Peter are, don't be afraid. Draw near. I've got great plans for you. It's not because of who you were. It's not because of what you can contribute. It's because I've got great plans for you and I will make you what you yourself know you were not. You see that really played out. You get a graphic illustration of it next in the story of this leper. How that Jesus is willing to remove shame and restore belonging. It's a short little cameo. We don't get a lot of the details. We're introduced to him very briefly while Jesus is in one of the cities. doesn't even matter where. There came a man full of leprosy, full of leprosy. Now, leprosy was a category of all kinds of skin ailments from a little bit of psoriasis that just got a little itchy. You feel a little itchy now? I hope so. You can feel that, 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 that leprosy or psoriasis skin stuff. And, and, or all the way to open weeping sores. That could be contagious. And the leper was ostracized. In fact, let me, let me read briefly just a couple of verses out of Leviticus chapter 13. The leprous person who has a disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he will cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean, and he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp or the city or the town, outside the wall. It reminds me of a line Hebrews talks about Jesus, that Jesus suffered outside the camp. And so he says, let us be willing to go to him outside the camp, bearing his shame. His same rejection of men. What does it matter? This leper lives outside the camp. This leper is, knows what it is to be shamed, to be dishonored, to be detestable, to be excluded, to be alone. And in desperation, he calls out to Jesus. Not daring to get too near, but he calls out to Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And in the midst of your isolation, in the midst of your rejection, in the midst of the trouble that's come upon you, that has marked you before others, and you are excluded, you don't belong. Jesus, you could change this. 
If you were willing, if you cared, you could, you could change this. And Jesus says to the man, I will. I am willing. Be clean. For such a, four words, I will be clean. Four words that change this man's everything. All of a sudden, this has not happened in Israel before. The only record we have of a leper being healed in all the Bible is a Syrian general who sent to the prophet Elijah, Elisha. That's the only one. Never in Israel do we have a record of a leper being healed, and yet this man is made clean. Be clean. And then what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't just say, hey, you know, see you later. Been great to have you here today. Glad you came. He says, go to the priest. Go to the priest and present yourself because the priest is the only one who, even as a priest, at one point declared this, determined, diagnosed, this man is a leper. He is unclean. He's to be outside the community. He's excluded. He's banished. He's shunned. The priest is the only one that can reverse that. The priest can't reverse it by healing. There's nothing in the Old Testament law that says the priest can heal you if you do these rituals. No, he's stuck there. But the priest is the one who can recognize that he has been healed, that he has been made clean. And part of that ritual involves a sin offering. It doesn't indicate that that sin caused. In fact, now that he's made clean, a sin offering is made. There's just a connection in the ritual between the leprosy out of the human condition and our mortality. And as the Bible says, this corruption needs to be changed. This corruption must put on incorruption. That's a problem with our mortality. And so he's recognized as clean by the priest, examined, recognized as clean, certified, good housekeeping, Levitical seal of approval. And a sin offering is given. He's not only declared clean, he's declared innocent. There is no spot against him. There is no stain on this man. In fact, think about it. He has become a celebrity. He's... He's as big now as Lazarus is going to be. Look what Jesus has done. Jesus is honored. Jesus is lifted up. And this man is lifted up as the one whom Jesus lifted. Out of his shame into honor. And as recognized as clean, Jesus doesn't merely meet his immediate need, but Jesus restores him to belonging in the community again. Jesus is willing to remove shame and restore belonging. And there's a character here of what church should be, what the household of God should be, what the family of God should be. We should be a community of people who have had our shame removed and who belong, no matter what anybody else thinks. In fact, through history, in the majority of the world, for the majority of history, true Christians have been despised by other religious people, by non-religious people. But through history, in the majority of the world, true followers of Jesus have been despised by those around them. And yet Jesus himself says, you belong 
with me. You have been made clean. You are innocent of any charge against you. Jesus touched him. That's astounding. That Jesus would touch this leper and he's not made unclean in the process. Have you known people that you'd help them if you could but you sure didn't want to get too close because you didn't want any of it to rub off? It might be just awful practices they participate in. It might be their views and opinions are just so contrary to yours that you don't want anything to do with them. It might be that um, uh, maybe there's, there's something spiritually not right with them and you can sense there's some spiritual presence there and you're afraid something demonic might rub off on you. Jesus had no such fears. We don't need to either in him. There's no place safer. There's no place more secure than to belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to be His. You see, Jesus, this man has been defined. This man has been described. This man has been categorized. But what He was, He is no longer because redemption, get this, redemption is redefinition. Jesus has changed who He is. And Jesus took the man who was outcast, he removes his shame, he lifts him up, and he restores him to belong with God's people. Next, there's one who's left out because he's powerless to change his own situation. He's a paralyzed man. The paralyzed man also is excluded. He's also considered unclean. For instance, any, any serious physical defect would exclude you from ever entering the temple as a normal Israelite could do. There's something not right with him. There's something wrong. And why has God done this? We're not sure. Maybe it's because of his sin. Maybe it's because of his, of his parents' sin, like the man who was born blind. We're not sure, but that echoes around in our head. There must be something wrong with them, like Job's friends. Oh, there must be something in you somewhere that God has chosen to do this or let this befall you. Well, in this next story, the healing of the paralyzed man, they're, they're all gathered together in some very large house. It's either a very wealthy person's house. It's not your typical Galilean home because of the different style of roof. They have roof tiles. And, and, and all of these important Pharisees and scribes of the law have come from all over Galilee, from every village and from Judea and even from Jerusalem. The big dignitaries are in town to check out this new rabbi, to see what it is that Jesus is teaching, to hopefully catch him in some of those words. And they're all seated around and they have taken up all the seats. They have filled the place, overflowing to the door. Somebody in need can't get in. Now, this paralyzed man couldn't bring himself anyway. He couldn't have got himself in. But he's got four friends. And so on a stretcher with four friends, they bring him along. They can't get in the door. So what do they do? They go up on the roof, and they, they, they move aside some of those tiles to be able to lower him down through the beams, the rafters in the roof, and they lower him down. What a commotion this is caused. This is a serious teaching meeting here. We're here to check out and to find the problems and the faults with what this Jesus guy is saying. What are you guys doing? What do you think you're doing here? You don't belong here. You're not one of us. And Jesus, seeing their faith, Jesus, seeing their faith, he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. What? Where did that come from? 
He's a paralyzed man. Why is Jesus feeding into this whole thing about, well, if you're paralyzed, it must be because of some sin. Well, Jesus is simply speaking to what already is in the minds of the people who were there. You must deserve this in some way. Why is it when trouble piles on, we pile on shame? Why do we do that in some vain, some useless effort to try to feel better ourselves by declaring others somehow less? We can feel better about ourselves in the process. Piling on shame of others. Jesus says to him, your sin is forgiven. Huh. They start to grumble among themselves. They're not saying anything out loud. They're saying it in their hearts. They're saying it to themselves. And so Jesus perceives their thoughts in verse 22, and he says, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk? All along, Jesus intends to lift this man up. All along, that's what he's going to do. The gospel has made room for one who is left out, one who can't even bring himself there. Jesus has room for him. The Pharisees, the dignitaries, they don't have room. Jesus has room for him. Which is easier to say. Oh, anybody can say your sins are forgiven. How do we know? Really? How do we know unless we see it in the way that you now walk? How would we know there's been any spiritual change? How would we know unless we see in your life and how you live, how you walk, that your sin is really forgiven? And that's what Jesus does here. So he says to the man, so that you will know that the Son of God has power to forgive sin, rise, take up your bed, and go. And so the man gets up, picks up, and goes out. He's out of there rejoicing all the way, and the teaching meeting has turned into a worship service, and everybody's singing hallelujah. Wow, look what we have seen here today. And it's a wonderful thing. Look at the power of God on display. And what does this mean about the forgiveness of sins? Well, this is, this, we're going to have to think about that. Yeah, he's got their attention. But what does it mean for that man? What does it mean for the one who couldn't even get himself there? And yet, the gospel has room for him. A man who's left out, a man who's laid low, and Jesus literally, as young Stephen said up here, literally raises him up and turns him loose. Wow. He didn't deserve it. He wasn't worthy of it. It wasn't even his faith. It was the faith of his friends. Think about that for a minute. How do we do that? Who would we grab hold of, lay on a stretcher, and bring him into Jesus' presence? How would we even do that? What do we do with the story? I wonder if prayer is like that. Certainly prayer is something more than informing God of what's going on and what we need and kind of steering him in the direction that he ought to respond. Certainly prayer is more than letting God know about these things. Maybe prayer is how we bring our friend before Jesus. How we take somebody in need who doesn't even know how to pray themselves, doesn't even think they can, and we carry them on the stretcher before that throne of grace that they could find mercy and grace to help in time of need. And Jesus will answer based not on their faith yet, but maybe on yours. It's stunning here. It's the friend's faith that causes Jesus to say to him, your sin is forgiven. 
Wow. The gospel makes room for the one who is left out, and the gospel, Jesus honors those whom we don't think belong. Oh, there's plenty like this. There's plenty of people that we would cast out, that we would exclude, that we would leave behind like an IRS agent. We had an IRS agent in the church once. Didn't last, apparently. Hope you all didn't run him off. <sighs> Maybe we did. Nobody likes the tax collector. No, and, and this guy is not going to, microphone falling off here. There we go. Make sure that's not too, okay. This guy is not a, a, the elevated, the chief tax collector that at least the high and important people of the, have to act like he's, he's their friend because of the power that he has. No, this guy's a toll booth operator. This guy's the customs collector. This guy sits in a, he's a mid-level bureaucrat. These are the kind of IRS employees that you love to loathe. And it's not their fault. This guy, his name is Levi. He should have been a Levite, probably. He should be involved in the things of the temple and the things of God, and he's left that behind. He's still in the family, but he's probably irreligious at this point. His friends are tax collectors and sinners because nobody else would have him. When he has a dinner party, that's who comes, tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus is walking along and sees him there in the toll booth, and Jesus says to him, follow me. You follow me. Well, that's very strange. He is not your typical rabbi's recruit. A, a distinguished, up-and-coming, known-across-the-country rabbi is gathering a small band of disciples who are going to be mentored and learned from him, these 12, and Levi would not be a candidate. In fact, he's, he's guilty of collusion with the Romans. And yet Jesus singles him out. Jesus pursues him. Jesus honors him, makes him belong when he did not. That's surprising. He hosts a dinner party. All the undesirables come because those were his friends, because he wasn't desirable himself. And then Jesus and his disciples are there. And the Pharisees are grumbling about it. What are you, what are you doing? If you're, a, if you're a teacher of God, what, what are you doing with those people? Don't you know who they are? Why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Well, there's probably beer in there. Why, why, they probably have bacon on their cheeseburgers. Now, hold on here. You're, you keyed in on the bacon. Did you know that in Jewish circles, you would not have cheese and burgers together? You, wouldn't, you never have dairy and meat together in the same meal. They've got bacon on their cheeseburgers. This is scandalous. It's because they live irreligiously. They live as if God does not. And yet, Levi, Matthew, wants them to know that God is and what Jesus has done. Matthew invites them and invites you. You know, in our church in South Africa, we used to do what we called Matthew parties. That was the internal name for them. Have a Matthew party. What is a Matthew party? A Matthew party is where you, where, where you have a barbecue, you have a picnic, you have a dinner, and you invite all of your tax collector and sinner friends, the people that you work with, the people in your neighborhood, the people that you know who don't know Jesus, people that aren't interested in coming to church with you, and yet you know them, you're friends with them. Invite them and invite some of your Christian friends, but be careful which ones. Don't invite the Pharisees. 
Don't invite the judgmental ones. Don't invite the ones who will gossip. Don't invite the ones who will simply sit over there and talk amongst themselves. Invite the ones who are on mission who will say, yeah, I'll come. Yeah, I'll, I'll meet them. I'll, 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 I'll get to know them. And, and maybe along the way, God will give us an opportunity. Let the spring women's tea be a big Matthew party for the whole church to see who we can invite. That's what we do in Christmas jazz, isn't it? Christmas jazz is a Matthew party where we invite people not to shame them, not to judge them quietly among ourselves, but we want them to know the Jesus who has so lifted us because he would do that for them too. Now, who are our Levites? Who are our tax collectors and sinners? Well, they would be all kinds of people that disagree with us. They would be people of other political parties. Matthew supported the Romans. The Pharisees certainly did not. They will be people who have a different worldview than you do. They have a different values. They have a different moral code. You think they have none at all. They do. It's just very different than yours, probably. And yet, these are the ones for whom Jesus came. And Jesus' answer to the Pharisees' critique is, I've not come to call the righteous. <laughs> the righteous are fine, right? I've come to call the sinners to repentance. Why, you Pharisees, you think they're sinners? You think they need to repent? Yes, they do. Well, have you told them that? Well, we're pretty sure they know what we think of them. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they do too. They know what we think of them. What if what we think of them is that Jesus loves them as much as he loves me or you or any of us. And he would, he would just as easily invite them as for some goofy reason he invited me. I understand that. But I kind of know a little bit about what to do about it. What do I do with it? These are the ones the king delights to honor the one that you and I would leave out. These are the ones whom the king delights to honor, the ones that shame, their own shame, their own estimation of themselves, they would self-exclude. God wouldn't care about me. God would never bless me. It's dangerous to get too close to God. The king delights to honor a leopard, a leper who is, I said leopard, a leper, also spots, but who's, who is shunned, outcast, doesn't belong. You who were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's our story. Jesus redefines his reality. A paralyzed man who is lifted up, healed, and declared not only whole. He's made to stand upright and to walk again as a man created in the image of God who walks upright over the rest of creation. Theologians would tell you that that image bearing, that our walking upright, unique among all the rest of creation, there's something in the image of God there. And this man is restored to it out of the weakness of our broken, fallen, sinful humanity. The king would delight to honor those whom others don't think belong. The truth is, that's your story. That's my story. We were ones like that, that the king delighted to honor. And oh, that God would use us like Levi, 
Uh, not to write the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew, but that God would use us to share that gospel with the people that he's put us around. I want you to think of some of those people. Maybe stretch your faith. Think of the one you think least likely. Think of the one that gives you a hard time for believing. Huh, wonder why they do that. I wonder why it matters. I wonder what's provoking that. Why, why is it your faith makes them so uncomfortable? Think of somebody that you, honestly, just in your own head, you don't think they belong. Within the circle of faith, the redeemed. And let's pray. Father, this one, this one would you lift. This one whom we might not consider worthy of honor. Lord, check our hearts. Lord, remind us that, that worthiness has got nothing to do with it. It's all about who you are and what you are willing to do. Lord, would you use us? Father, would you, would you like Levi, would you so honor us and lift us because you, we know, we've seen how you delight to honor, so would you do that by using us in your good work of lifting someone else? Father, by your Spirit, guide us in the next step that we might have the privilege of bringing another one, perhaps just one step, that next step closer to faith in Jesus. Lord, in our own life and how we walk upright, might we show something of your glory, not in a way that pushes others away, but in a way that we could be used by you to invite them also to belong in your family. In Jesus' name, amen.